0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett.
1: And I'm Sabrina.
0: And today in our 376th episode, we've got a bunch of news, including a new velociraptorine. So a velociraptor close relative.
1: Ooh. We also talk about sauropod next, because you got to talk about sauropods at some point.
0: In every episode, yeah.
1: Almost every episode. We (laughs) missed a couple. That's okay.
0: (gasps) And we have dinosaur of the day, Tenontosaurus. And of course, a fun fact. But before we get into all that, as always, we'd like to thank some of our patrons who remain the main reason and the driving force behind us creating the podcast. And this week, we'd like to thank Verociraptor, Viatus, the Howard family, Pippaseratops, Vincentrosaurus, Jackson Crawford, Sam Menthosaurus, Reed, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, and Jonah.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for being part of our community of dinosaur enthusiasts.
0: Jumping into the news, I'm going to kick it off with our new Velociraptorine, as promised. This paper was published in American Museum Novitates. That's the American Museum of Natural History publication. And it was written by James Napoli and others. It is a new dromaeosaurid, also known as a raptor. You probably knew that based on it being a Velociraptorine.
1: That is a big giveaway.
0: It's from the same area as the Alvarosaurids we talked about last week, the Kulsan locality of the barun Goyat formation, which is in, I call it southern Mongolia. The authors call it central Mongolia. Southern if you're talking, you know, north-south, it's central if you're going east-west. And it's about 72 plus or minus a couple million years old. The authors think that dating it to 72 to 71 million years ago, like we usually do, is a little bit too specific. Even though it's between the Namekht and the Jadokta formation, we're not really sure exactly if they overlap a little bit or, you know, exactly how they arrange in the timeline. But this Kulsan cool locality of the Burungayat formation, in addition to having those two Alvarasaurids, already had one dromaeosaurid in it. It had Shri Devi, which we talked about not too long ago. In fact, the new dinosaur was found at the exact same time, basically, as Shri. One place I was reading said that it was found just a few hours before Shri. Oh, wow. Way back in 1991.
1: It took a little longer to describe.
0: Yeah, but just a few months. Shri is named after the female protector deity that rides on a horse across an ocean of blood. <laughs> i remember that it's just a very vivid description always stands out to me and it's easy for me to remember because it had a slightly longer sickle claw than velociraptor which makes it seem extra ferocious it's not from the same formation though as velociraptor velociraptor is from the jadokta formation which is one layer earlier it ends at about 72 to 71 million years ago right when this formation starts Although Velociraptor itself may have lasted into the Barungoyat formation because there are some dromaeosaurid pieces we have that are inconclusive. So some people think they look like Velociraptor pieces, but we really don't know. It could be just about any raptor, especially now that we have two Velociraptorines because <laughs> Shri is also a Velociraptorine, pretty similar to Velociraptor other than those big claws and a couple other minor details. The new raptor is named Kuru Kula, and it was previously called a Roccoraptor in 1999. It was actually, it, even though it was found in 91, when a different dinosaur was described, they had a table of different measurements, as they often do, sort of explaining why this new dinosaur is different. And they included this new dinosaur with the weird name, even though Ooh. it had never been described before.
1: We've seen that in other papers, too, with other dinosaurs that are not yet described. It's kind of interesting. Then you know what's coming.
0: Yeah, but in this case, it, it wasn't coming because it's 22 years, 23 years later <laughs> that they yeah. actually finally named it.
1: Well, I would argue it was coming. It just took 20-something years. With a
0: different name, though. Oh, true. So a rockeraptor was only listed in that table and was never formally described as a new dinosaur. But as a fun fact aside, a rock is a fermented mare or donkey milk product, mm. So authors put it. <laughs> And apparently it's similar to kefir or kefir, although it has a little bit more alcoholic content, usually between like a little over half a percent to two and a half percent alcohol, sort of in the same ballpark as beer. I read some people describing it as technically similar to wine in that it's a fermented thing from from sugars. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you just take the milk and you ferment it. But in practice, it's a little bit more like beer because it has less alcohol content and that immediately made me think it's funny, it's paleontologists naming a dinosaur after a local beer equivalent. And we always hear stories about paleontologists drinking a lot of beer when they go out in the field. But in this case, they didn't end up naming it after this fermented milk. They ended up naming it Kurukula and Kuru, the genus, as well as the species Kula, combined to reference Kuru Kula, a deity from Tibetan Buddhism.
1: It's a very different meaning.
0: Yes. Very similar to Sri Devi, though. Mm-hmm. Kuru is, quote, considered peaceful to semi-wrathful. She is depicted with four arms, holding in one pair of hands a bow and arrow, and in the other pair, a hook and noose. It seems a little bit more than just peaceful. But anyway, mm-hmm. all of which are made of flowers, which does make it sound kind of peaceful. Kurukula is particularly associated with major life transitions, we emphasize here that the generic name Kuru is not in reference to the cannibalism-born prion disease of the same name, end quote.
1: Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. it's a lot going on. So, yeah, prion diseases are pretty gnarly, and you can get them through cannibalism, apparently. So, another reason not to do cannibalism. The holotype includes a partial skull of which there is a right premaxilla, which is the tip of the snout, part of the right jaw, and a couple of other small pieces from throughout the skull. It does have quite a few vertebrae with 17 in total, mostly from the back, but there are a few from the tail and neck as well. And they also found parts of the hips, arms, legs, pieces from both feet, and part of a hand. Pretty good. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good assortment from throughout the body. The fossils are also in pretty good shape although they said not as good as Shri.
1: So it took them a few extra months. I think it
0: yeah I think it's probably why it wasn't on the high end list of things to name. It was similar in size to Shree and therefore Velociraptor. so you're talking about two meters or six feet long and under a meter tall or like maybe two feet tall so pretty small obviously way smaller than the Velociraptors, quote-unquote, in Jurassic Park, as always. Although they didn't give a specific size estimate for Kuru in the paper because, I don't know why, actually, <laughs> but they said it was similar to Sri, so we can infer its overall size. Kuru's closest relative is Otosaurus, which is from the later Nemect formation, that's the one at the end of the Cretaceous after the Goyat although there are still a lot of differences between Kuru and Otosaurus. So they listed, the paper is mostly one of those where they're describing in painstaking detail all the details of every single bone and not really going much into this is how we thought it lived or any sort of assumptions about its life or size or really behavior or anything like that. But they did describe some really interesting details of Kuru. There is a sharp groove at the front of its snout which is very similar to Velociraptor, although the one in Velociraptor is a little bit less pronounced. There's also a hornlet above its eye on the lacrimal. So That's fun. Yeah. I think, though, that that let part of hornlet needs a lot of emphasis because... It's pretty small. Yeah, it's only a few millimeters long. So yes, it's very small. Of course, it could have been bigger when it was alive because it likely was covered in keratin and we know keratin can really extend those bony things Mm -hmm. out quite a bit, especially on horns. We see modern animals that have pretty small bony bumps on a skull and they can have a really large horn growing off the top of it, which would be amazing. The idea of a velociraptor with horns.
1: Yeah. (laughs) In addition to the sickle claw.
0: That's crazy. That's very demonic looking, I think.
1: Imposing for sure.
0: Yeah. Even though it was small, if it had horns and like big claws, like, oof. Kuru also had serrations on both sides of its teeth, meaning the front and the back of the teeth. Most Dromaeosaurus have serrations only on the back side of the teeth, but Dromaeosaurus and a couple others do have serrations on the front and back. And like those other Dromaeosaurus that have serrations on both sides, the front serrations on Kuru are much smaller than the ones on the back because that's where really the the slicing is happening is on that back edge. If you imagine your mouth closing, it sort of puts the pressure on the back sides of the teeth, not so much on the front because that's what hits first. From the bones that we have, it looks like the hands are really similar to Velociraptor, although they couldn't find any quill knobs on the back of the forearm like they did on Velociraptor. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's possible that it didn't have maybe as big of feathers, I guess. That's just me sort of trying to assume what that would mean. Because on Velociraptor, those quill knobs literally show you that there were long feathers that were directly attached to the bone in the forearm. Whereas if they're missing in Kuru, that means that it either had smaller feathers, maybe slightly smaller or maybe it didn't have feathers. I don't know.
1: Could it be just didn't preserve as well?
0: Yeah, I guess that's always a possibility because they said it wasn't quite as well preserved and a little bit weathered. But I don't know. could be something interesting.
1: Something to go along with that hornlet.
0: Yeah. They estimate the metatarsis to femur ratio is about 51%, which is a really long lower leg compared to the upper leg. For reference, Velociraptor and Tree are both the same at about 35%. Hmm. So yeah, it had really long lower legs. They, again, didn't give a reason for that. I know in the past I've seen that used as an analogy for maybe sprinting ability, the ratio of longer lower leg to upper leg. But I was trying to validate that and I kept finding more stuff that was just about the overall leg length. So I'm not sure if that's still a common thing people think of. The toe claw is, as they put it, nearly identical to Shri, but about two thirds the size of Shri. Hmm. So again, Sri is, is holding up as having extraordinarily large toe claws. Mm-hmm. Since Kuru lived alongside Sri, it may mean that they competed for food.
1: Especially if they have all these similarities.
0: Yeah, they do have quite a few. But unfortunately, we can't compare it very well because we don't have a skull from Shri.
1: Oh, that makes it really hard to know then, you know, what kind of foods they might have been going for.
0: Yeah, you either want a coprolite or some gut contents or teeth. Or something. I mean, even jaws help. But without any of that stuff for Shri, it's like we basically just filled in the gaps of Shri with Velociraptor. Because mm-hmm. a lot of it's so similar that we're like, oh, it's probably all like Velociraptor. But now we've got Kuru that has quite a few differences <laughs> from Velociraptor. So you might question that a little bit.
1: Doesn't mean a skull won't be found in the future. That's true. All right. Now we can dig into the sauropod news item. Oh, good. <laughs> This one was really interesting. It was a paper by Michael Taylor in Pure J, and it's titled Almost All Known Sauropod Necks Are Incomplete and Distorted, which is basically what the paper's about.
0: I'm not surprised that they're almost all incomplete because they're so huge that, you know, preserving 10 meters or so of neck seems unlikely. But the fact that they're all almost all distorted is a little surprising.
1: Yeah. this started as a preprint in 2015 well actually it started as a post on sauropod vertebra picture of the week back in may 2011 and that post was called how long was the neck of diplodocus then it became a preprint 2015
0: that's interesting that a lot of times the stuff on svpow is not about actual vertebrae but it's fun that this one is specifically about sauropod vertebrae
1: (laughs) i think there's a lot of vertebrae on it but it's been going for so long Mm -hmm. they branched out so they wrote an SVPow about the latest paper coming out, quote, I hope this paper will be of use, especially to people coming into the field with the same unrealistic assumptions I had back in the early 2000s. I mean, there's always a lot of fun quotes from SVPow. Another one is, quote, by the way, when I was fine tooth combing the proof PDF a few days ago, I was delighted to be reminded that I got the phrase rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty into the paper, a reference, of course, to the words of the philosopher Room fondle in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> so to jump in, sauropod necks, they're not that well known, and not many have been described, which was surprising to me because, and they kind of go over this in the paper, like there's so many mounted skeletons of sauropods in museums. So the neck bones of sauropods are often large and fragile, and they're prone to disarticulation and distortion, and often necks are incomplete. They said, quote, in older specimens, missing bone is often difficult to spot due to over enthusiastic restoration. (laughs) Yeah. So again, those specimens in museums, they often appear complete, but they're not always.
0: Yeah, that's why I really like it when in museums, when they do restoration work, they do it in a completely different color than Mm -hmm. the fossil so you can clearly see which part of it is restored and which part of it is the original material.
1: Yes. I think they did that less in the early days.
0: I, I think it's still pretty uncommon. Because the thing that looks the best and the most impressive is if you have this full thing that makes it look like, oh, we have this entire T-Rex skeleton, this entire sauropod skeleton on display for you to see. If they color it in a way where you're like, oh, we really only know seven of the bones, Mm. it doesn't look as impressive.
1: Oh, I like, I prefer it when I know what's bone and what's an estimate.
0: Yeah, me too. But I think the, the general public might not.
1: Could be. So sometimes vertebrae, they're complete, but they're distorted. For example, the Diplodocus at the Carnegie is one of those.
0: Also known as Dippy.
1: Yes, Dippy. <laughs> and it can also be difficult to know which vertebra is the first one in the neck, especially if it's not articulated when they're found. And apparently in the literature, and some of the papers, sometimes it's hard to tell if a neck is actually complete because sometimes it's described as complete, but that means only part of each vertebra is preserved or there's damage.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, it's like when I was describing Kuru and saying, like, we've got all these bones, but a lot of those are partial.
1: Mm -hmm. We also don't know for many species how many vertebrae are in a complete neck because the fossils found are scattered and not articulated. So this paper included a catalog of complete sauropod necks, uh, complete, articulated, and adequately described, though they said that sometimes the vertebrae are damaged. There are Nine specimens in total.
0: Yeah, that's not so bad.
1: That was so much lower than I thought (laughs) there would be.
0: Actually, I guess it's pretty bad because I I was thinking about it and I know there are some pretty small sauropods. I was like, well, if you add those together, you probably got a few dozen, but I guess not.
1: Especially when you take into account, according to the paleobiology database, there's 342 sauropod species.
0: Yeah. And some of those have over 100 individuals known. Yeah. So,
1: but there's only nine quote unambiguously complete and articulated necks end quote. So yeah, it seems low when you're in the single digits, it seems <laughs> yeah. low. Now these specimens include a referred juvenile specimen of Camarasaurus lentis.
0: Oh, that's the one I was uh, at first thinking of. That's the one we have on our wall. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a little recreation of that one.
1: <laughs> there's a holotype of Apatosaurus louise, the holotype of Mementosaurus hochuanensis a referred specimen of Shunosaurus Lei, the holotype of Cathetosaurus lewisii, the holotype of Amargosaurus cazaulii, the holotype of Mementosaurus youngi, the holotype of Phutolongosaurus dukes, and the holotype of Xinjiang titan Shanshanensis. So lots of holotypes in there.
0: Yeah, that's nice. So you kind of get the most value (laughs) out of those.
1: Yeah, for the necks. (laughs) Yeah, because you
0: can compare them and it's not like, oh, well, you know, we've been calling it this thing, but we're not really sure. Fits in the phylogenetic matrices really well that way.
1: True. There's also five specimens known to have complete articulated necks that are not yet described. So we will get into the double digits eventually. (laughs) And that includes some chimerosaur specimens, and titanosaurs.
0: Nice. camarasaurus is a really cool one. I love his big, chunky teeth.
1: Yeah, and the boxy head. Mm-hmm. They also listed sauropods with necks that were complete only from the second vertebra onwards. There's five of those. There's one sauropod complete from the first vertebra, but it's not complete to the end of the neck. There's also three specimens with complete necks, but only from further back in the sequence.
0: So they're complete in the range that they have the vertebrae, like there aren't any gaps, but you're missing the beginning of it?
1: Yeah, they just start a little later. And there's five specimens with necks that are probably nearly complete, but they weren't found articulated, so it's really hard to say. (laughs)
0: Yeah, (laughs) like, are there 12 and we have all of them, or are there 13 and we're missing one in the middle somewhere?
1: Yeah. The paper also mentioned that there's some well-known sauropods that are thought to have complete necks, quote, but in each case, the truth is less clear. (laughs) (laughs) So one example is Dippy, the Diplodocus Carnegie originally on display at Carnegie Museum. And of course, there's lots of casts. And that one, Dippy appears to have 15 neck vertebrae, but different publications have said that there are 11, at least 13, 14, or more than 15.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So it depends who you ask, I guess.
1: Yes. Also, Apatosaurus luisei, which is the best-known species of Apatosaurus. It was mounted for an exhibition back in 1913. There's some distortion because the neck was compressed, and three of the vertebrae at the end are badly crushed, so it's pretty hard to know how the end of the neck looked. Mm. Then there's Giraffatitan titan bronchi. A lot of that one is incorporated into the skeleton that you see at the Natural History Museum Berlin. The mount is based on real bones from two specimens— both of them were found in the same quarry, but the bones were jumbled up together, not really articulated, and Taylor suggested that one of the vertebrae comes from a different taxon because it's unusually tall, mm. and he's in the process of redescribing that. So he thinks it may be possible that the two specimens represent two different taxa or different types of dinosaurs. Oh, man.
0: So there might be another titan species coming up or maybe even a whole
1: new genus. Exactly. And he concluded that giraffe and bronchi probably had 13 vertebrae in its neck, but it could be more or less. So yes, there are problems with sauropod neck preservation. Sauropods, they're big, so it's less likely that everything stays intact. And their vertebrae are fragile, so it's more likely to get distorted. You can apparently address some of this through retro deformation, which are techniques that use these mathematical processes to make virtual models of the fossils. So you try to restore them to how they looked before they were deformed.
0: Oh, yeah. We've seen some papers that try that. It's really cool. I like that a lot.
1: Yeah. But Taylor was saying sometimes this can make a vertebra seem shorter, broader, or thinner than it should be. Yeah. You have to be careful.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so much variability in vertebrae that it's hard to know exactly if you're over-de-deforming it or not you deforming it Yo. enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> also with some older specimens, the way that they've been prepared, it's hard to know what's real and what's been, as he put it, enthusiastically restored <laughs> to make the mount look nicer in a museum. And that happened, for example, with O.C. Marsh and his Brontosaurus excelsus. Mm. So he concluded, quote, we are woefully short of sauropod necks, end quote. And that means we have best guesses around the necks, but it's hard to say for sure. For example you know, we don't know the exact number of vertebrae in a lot of sauropod necks. And it's hard to draw firm conclusions around neck posture and range of motion.
0: Yeah, I think of this a lot when people are arguing about what the longest dinosaur is or which dinosaur is longer than others. And you can find a book that'll say like, this one was 54 feet long and that one was 55 feet long. It's like, there could be another two foot vertebra missing <laughs> in one of their necks and it would switch them so easily.
1: Or maybe it turned out that a couple of the vertebrae were shorter than we think or yeah. something. Yeah. And
0: that's not even to mention the tail, which in a lot of these dinosaurs is even more variable. True. And I'm sure we don't have a lot of tails, complete tails either.
1: Probably not. Maybe someone's doing a paper on that. <laughs> yeah. But none of this is necessarily an issue taylor was saying as long as papers acknowledge the degree of uncertainty there's still enough information to see like how morphology varies and to help with phylogenetic analysis which is good
0: it's nice that of the complete sauropod necks we have that they are in a few different families Mm -hmm. so that maybe that helps us fill in the gaps of more dinosaurs that way
1: yeah at least get an idea of the general shape
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash DinoDig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash DinoDig, D I N O D I G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022.
0: Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com
1: slash investing in America. Speaking of Dippy, we mentioned Dippy earlier. the sauropod neck paper the cleveland museum of natural history is getting its own dippy the diplodocus cool yeah well they're also uh they say de-installing but i think it's more renovating happy the haplocanthosaurus sauropod
0: (laughs) happy the haplocanthosaurus
1: yeah these are great names so happy just quickly was excavated back in 1954 and is the holotype that they have it's been in kirtland hall for many years and Happy is getting a makeover, as they put it. They previously had Happy mounted with the tail touching the floor. So Research Casting International is giving Happy an upgrade.
0: <laughs> getting the tail up off the ground.
1: Yeah. And the museum's getting a new visitor hall in late 2023, so Happy's going to be there. And in the meantime, a cast of Dippy is going to be keeping Happy spot warm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe those were easily available as a standard.
1: Oh, yeah, you got sauropod, replacing a sauropod. Mm-hmm. Dippy, yes. Dippy's going to be on display through September of this year, and then it sounds like Dippy goes back to the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. So I guess it's on loan.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how many Dippies there are. No, <laughs> but there.
1: Dippy's going on all kinds of tours in the last couple of years.
0: The the original British Museum Dippy. I shouldn't say original because yes, it's, the original you know, a is Carnegie. Yeah, the Carnegie one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the one that culturally is very significant in Britain, especially, has Mm -hmm. been on tour.
1: In other news, in Grand Cache, Alberta, visitors to Grand Cache Tourism and Interpretive Center can experience a track site, a dinosaur track site in VR. And this track site in real life, it's on a sheer cliff at the edge of the Rocky Mountains.
0: I could see how VR might help with that. Probably hard to see in person.
1: Yes. Even in VR, I think it might get a little scary. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> they might rotate it
1: <laughs> there's a team from lethbridge college that used photogrammetry to create the experience it's virtual it's 360 degrees there's audio and narration and they also include an augmented reality scene that you can access through snapchat you scan a marker and a dinosaur appears in ar as well as giant insects foliage and ground that shifts to reveal the tracks hmm. Now, these tracks, they were first found in 1969. There's about 10,000 embedded footprints from the Cretaceous, and they're all along a a cliff. Wow, that is a ton. But the area with the tracks is privately leased. So the team's hoping one day visitors will be able to safely see the track site in person. But in the meantime, it's cool that it's in VR. Yeah. Our last news item for this episode, I'm sure a lot of you saw headlines around this. Dwayne The Rock Johnson we now know is a fan of Stan the T-Rex, and he didn't buy the original Stan for $32 million. That's still, we don't know who bought that Stan.
0: Oh, I see. People saw some hint of a a T-Rex and thought, was he the one that bought it?
1: Yeah, he appeared on a Monday Night Football Manning cast, and viewers saw a large T-Rex skull in his background, and that's Stan. It's a cast.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah, even more confusing then, because if you're familiar with Stan, you might be like, oh, look at that. It's Stan.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So people got confused and Johnson later shared a photo of Stan and the team from the Black Hills Institute who made the cast and an explanation that he wasn't the mystery buyer who bought Stan. He wrote, quote, in my home office, this is my replica cast of Stan that I had made and purchased from my friends at the Black Hills Institute of Geological Research and Paleontological Excavators. He explains about the original stand being found in 1987 and excavated in 1992, and he says, in science, this T-Rex skull is considered to be the most perfectly preserved skull ever found. Bones of this beautiful beast were perfectly pristine. <laughs> that is why Stan is so extraordinary and special.
0: It sounds like he really drank the Kool-Aid on that advertising copy for the Stan skull. <laughs> I don't know if I would, I would put it like that. It is a very nice skull.
1: Yeah. Right? And you see Stan everywhere. It stands cool.
0: But the most pers- perfectly preserved skull ever found is <laughs> might be a little much.
1: Yeah, maybe at the time. Maybe, maybe that's what he meant. Now he explains. This is where he talks about how he's not the buyer. He says in 2020, Stan was auctioned and sold for 31.8 million dollars to an anonymous buyer, never seen again. That buyer was not me. (laughs) My love, respect, fascination, and curiosity for paleontological and archaeological science runs deep. And if I was the proud owner of the real Stan, I sure as hell wouldn't keep him in my office. I'd keep him (laughs) in a museum so the world could enjoy, study, and learn from him.
0: That's very nice.
1: Yeah. And then he gave some details about Stan, like. Stan's got multiple bites and punctures from another T. Rex on the skull, and Stan survived. He's got some fused vertebrae, and he was probably in, Stan was probably in some pain after all of that injury and healing. And he ends with uh, "Cheers to the Cretaceous Legend himself, Stan." End quote.
0: <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, there is a lot of overlap between like the wrestling persona and like manliness i think and wanting to collect these t-rex skulls because it's it's just like such an amazing powerful creature
1: or just having the room and the funds why wouldn't you get a cast
0: i think if i could get a replica of anything it would it would be a weirdo though yeah it'd be like a Dinochirus or a therizinosaurus or Uh, something
1: or you might get multiple if you had the space
0: i guess an ankylosaur club yeah I mean, we've got a couple little things. We've got a stegosaur plate and an allosaurus hand.
1: Yeah. And they're not that little.
0: (laughs) No, especially the stegosaurus plate. It's quite big.
1: (laughs) Yeah, casts are great.
0: They are. That's really cool. I I really like that he was talking about appreciation for paleontology and, you know, keeping things in public trust and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. That's really great.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was a nice post to see. And I think a lot of people in the science community appreciated seeing it.
0: Yeah. Better to be on that side of it than Nicolas Cage when his Tarbosaurus skull got seized.
1: Which who knows if he knew that he shouldn't have had that, but that's a yeah, good story. He did. Yeah, I
0: don't think he knew that it was illegally exported. Just the headline of having a, a fossil seized from your house is not great.
1: That's Yeah, that's very <laughs> true. <laughs> so I think that's why Dwayne Johnson wanted to set the record straight. I'm glad he did. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Tenontosaurus, which was a request from paleomike 716 via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks! It was an ornithopod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now the U.S. It's been found in Montana, Wyoming, Oklahoma, Texas, Idaho, Utah, and even Maryland. But it looks like it had a longer tail. Tenontosaurus was medium to large size. It was estimated to be 21 to 26 feet, or 6.5 to 8 meters long, and weighed between 1 and 2 tons.
0: It's not that big. For some reason, I always thought it was bigger, like closer to Edmontosaurus.
1: Maybe it's because of the way we see it depicted in statues. Hmm. It had this long, broad, stiff tail that was very long. It was about two thirds the length of its body, the tail. It also had a relatively long forelimb and it had a U-shaped beak. It was herbivorous. There are lots of plants around when Tenontosaurus lived, like ferns, cycads, maybe even some flowering plants. It probably ate ferns and shrubs. It may have also eaten wood and fruit. Tenontosaurus was a low browser, so if it was on two legs, it could have browsed food at a maximum height of about 10 feet or 3 meters from the ground. That's pretty good. Yeah. It's no sauropod height, but yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some sauropods.
1: Mm, True. There's two species of Tenantosaurus, Tenantosaurus Tileti and Tenantosaurus Daci. And the type species is Tenantosaurus Tileti. The genus name means sinew lizard. Oh, weird. (laughs) John Ostrom described Tenantosaurus Tileti and named it in 1970. And then Winkler, Murray, and Jacobs described and named Tenantosaurus Daci in 1997. The first specimen. Of Tanatosaurus was found back in 1903 by a field party from the American Museum of Natural History. They found a fragmentary partial skeleton in Bighorn County, Montana.
0: Wow! And it took almost 70 years before it got named.
1: Yes, it got informally named earlier. Okay. By Barnum Brown. There were more expeditions that Barnum Brown led in 1931, 32, 33, 38. And they found, quote, partial remains of at least 18 individuals. Wow! Yeah. So Brown informally named it Tenantosaurus, and that referred to the stiff tendons in its back and tail.
0: That seems more reasonable than (laughs) sinew lizard.
1: There's a field crew from the University of Oklahoma that collected at two sites in 1940 and, quote, one producing a large, virtually complete adult is associated with at least four small juveniles, end quote. Al Silberling, a private collector, excavated two specimens for Princeton University in 1948 and 1949. Those have not been described, but Brown also informally dubbed them Tenantosaurs. Then John Ostrom led an expedition of Yale University from 1962 to 1966 of the Cloverly Formation in Montana, Wyoming, and they found about 40 more specimens of Tenantosaurus. And more specimens have been found since 1970 from that formation cloverly as well as antlers formation in oklahoma paluxy formation in texas wyon formation in idaho cedar mountain formation in utah and Arundel formation in maryland
0: holy cow It really got around idaho texas and maryland yeah that's an amazing range
1: yeah and the fact that we found so many specimens is cool and it's the most common dinosaur in the cloverly formation Quote, more than 80 specimens have been recovered from the Cloverly formation since 1903 and can be attributed to Tenontosaurus, one of the most abundant early Cretaceous dinosaurs in North America.
0: Cool. Yeah, 80 specimens. That is a ton.
1: Yeah. And the antlers formation of Oklahoma has 16 partial or nearly complete skeletons of Tenontosaurus teleti.
0: That's almost enough specimens that you could do something like check Bergman's rule. If the ones farther <laughs> north are bigger than the ones farther south, there's other fun tests you could do.
1: Yeah. The ones in Oklahoma, they include a nearly complete articulated subadult or possibly early adult, too. And as I mentioned, Tenontosaurus dasae was found in Texas, but also in the Twin Mountains Formation in Parker County. In 1970, D. Andrew Thomas studied the skull of Tenontosaurus teleti. They CT scanned the skull. That one that they looked at was found in the antlers formation of Oklahoma. In that specimen, the middle part of the tail was what was first found. It was partially eroded from the slope of a hillside within a drained pond. They also found a sclerotic ring, though it was poorly preserved, but I always think it's cool when you find the sclerotic rings.
0: Yeah, the eye bones? hmm <laughs> Yeah, those are crazy. In
1: 1990, Catherine Forster studied the skeleton of Tenontosaurus teleti that was found in the Cloverly Formation. And then... We have Tenontosaurus doci that was first found in Texas. They had two articulated skeletons. And Tenontosaurus doci is considered to be more primitive than Tenontosaurus teleti. Those specimens found were, quote, unscavenged carcasses entombed in a brackish water lagoonal or estuary in sands, end quote. There were fossils found in Oklahoma and the Das Ranch site in Texas, as well as Wyoming and Montana. Just speaks to the sheer number of fossils that have been found of Tenontosaurus, both species. Yeah. In what is now Wyoming and Montana, the climate changed drastically during Tenontosaurus' time. It went from dry to tropical, and that seemed to coincide with an increase in the number of Tenontosaurus. So it's possible Tenontosaurus was a very adaptable dinosaur. In 2008, Andrew Lee and Sarah Werning studied an 8-year-old Tenontosaurus, and there were medullary bone tissue found in this 8-year-old specimen in the thigh and shin bone. Based on histology, that's how they figured it out it was 8 years old, but they also figured out it wasn't fully grown. Now, the medullary bone, as a quick reminder, it's got a lot of calcium and it forms when female birds and dinosaurs lay eggs. So we know that this specimen was female.
0: Or at least that's what some people think.
1: <laughs> yes. Because
0: this is kind of a contentious issue.
1: That's true. That's true. In the paper, they said figuring out the age of the reproductive maturity helps to figure out dinosaur physiology, the lifespan, and reproductive strategies. And they analyzed three dinosaurs known to have medullary bone. And so they're assuming is female. That included, in addition to the tenontosaurus that was eight, an allosaurus that was 10 years old, and a T Rex that was 18. So it's possible tenontosaurus reached sexual maturity much earlier, and as a prey dinosaur, it would have been beneficial for tenontosaurus to reproduce early.
0: Gotta multiply so that you can't all get eaten.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Keep the line going. In 2012, Sarah Warning wrote about ontogenetic osteohistology of tenontosaurus teleti. And basically, there were a lot of specimens, and that helped show a growth series they found that sub-adults often had what are known as double lags, which are, quote, two very closely spaced lags that likely did not represent an entire year of growth between them.
0: Oh, that's confusing.
1: Just means they grew very quickly.
0: It makes it hard to date the age of a dinosaur if they're having multiple lags in a year.
1: Yeah, well, what they were thinking is that they found signs of dramatically slowed growth in adult Tenontosaurus, and that happened for a few years before it was done growing or stopped growing completely. So early on and into sub-adulthood, Tenontosaurus would have grown pretty fast until it became reproductively mature and then growth may have slowed down. Hmm. This is similar to Rhabdodon and Zalmoxes, but it's different from other Iguanodontians, which they just grew quickly until they were fully grown. And because other dinosaurs grew quickly until they were fully grown, that could be why dinosaurs like Edmontosaurus and other similar ones got so much bigger, because they just never slowed down.
0: <laughs> just growing like gangbusters the whole time.
1: Yes, whereas Tenontosaurus was sexually mature before it was fully grown.
0: I think that's pretty common. I think most animals are.
1: Mm. Deinonychus fossils and teeth have also been found associated with Tenontosaurus teleti in over 50 Tanantosaurus sites 14 also have Deinonychus fossils, and that could be why, you know, we've seen different statues of Deinonychus attacking Tanantosaurus. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Tanantosaurus is just like, almost always the whole reason it's in any sort of display or diorama or anything is to get eaten by Deinonychus. Ultimate
1: prey animal.
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel bad for Yeah, Yeah,
1: you're not the only one. <laughs> About... 20% of Tenontosaurus fossils have been found close to Deinonychus. That could mean that Deinonychus was one of its main predators.
0: Or maybe Tenontosaurus was one of the main predators of Deinonychus.
1: Mm, that seems <laughs> less likely.
0: Yeah, it does, I guess.
1: Now, an adult Deinonychus is smaller than an adult Tenontosaurus, so it's unlikely that Deinonychus attacked alone. Yeah,
0: it's much smaller.
1: Yeah. And most tenontosaurus specimens found with Deinonychus, those tenontosaurus are only about half grown. Okay. Which makes sense.
0: That is something we talk about a lot. Everybody assumes when dinosaurs fight, they imagine the adults attacking each other. But if there's a tenontosaurus, at some point it came out of an egg and was very small. Mm -hmm. And then it could have been easy prey for a Deinonychus.
1: Grew enough to make a meal and... (laughs) Like
0: they're farming them.
1: (laughs) Almost. (laughs) So some scientists think that Deinonychus was a pack hunter because they're found with Tenontosaurus, which is much bigger, but there's not really evidence for coordinating hunting. Mm. It's possible they did mobbing behavior.
0: Yeah, that's the that's a huge debate. How much coordination was there? Was there no coordination whatsoever? And it was just individuals going after small ones mm-hmm. for scavenging? Or was it like a, a full-on hunt? Like with, lions? Yeah.
1: There's also evidence Deinonychus was cannibalistic and went into feeding frenzies around Tenontosaurus.
0: Oh, really? That certainly makes them a little less lion-like. Yes. (laughs) A little less coordinated-seeming.
1: Now, Deinonychus probably preferred juvenile Tenontosaurus. It would have been easier to go after. But they may have scavenged larger Tenontosaurus or gone after sick or injured adult Tenontosaurus. Gotta scavenge when you can. Yeah. Be opportunistic. If you want to hear more about Deinonychus, we covered that one way back in episode 14. Oof. (laughs) Oh, and one Tenontosaurus was found with chew marks from Deinonychus. So that's how we know Deinonychus was eating Tenontosaurus. Hmm.
0: Yeah, we just don't know the context, if it was already dead or how old it was and things like that.
1: Mm -hmm. But we haven't found any Tenontosaurus chew marks on Deinonychus (sighs) to go back to. Your speculation. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. R- ran, rampant speculation, yep. no basis in reality.
1: Yep. In 1992, Desmond Maxwell and John Ostrom wrote about the tephonomy and implications of Tenontosaurus and Deinonychus being found together. And they supported the idea of Deinonychus being a pack hunter and that Tenontosaurus, quote, was the specific food preference of the Deinonychus predator population, end quote. When Ostrom first described Tenontosaurus, he wrote that the Deinonychus specimens associated with fragments of Tenontosaurus in a quarry might be evidence that, quote, Deinonychus probably hunted in packs of six, eight, or more predators, a group capable of bringing down much larger prey animals, such as Tenontosaurus. And that view has generally been accepted ever since, but not without question, end quote.
0: Yeah, that's that's so specific that they're hunting in packs of six, Eight or more, like that's interesting that you would get to that conclusion from these animals fossilized together.
1: Well, in the 1992 paper, they said that the discovery of Tenontosaurus remains preserved with shed Deinonychus teeth that was found by the Museum of the Rockies team, quote, appears to substantiate Ostrom's conclusion that the repeated association of Deinonychus and Tenontosaurus remains indicates a clear food preference on the part of Deinonychus.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. But yeah. the number of them that were coordinating attacks is <laughs> <it's> little.
1: <laughs> it's, that is harder to find or to figure
0: out. Yeah, it's a little out there. I'm guessing they picked the number of six or eight or more because they're looking at the size of an adult Tenontosaurus and an adult Deinonychus and trying to figure out like how many would it take to bring it down. But again, don't necessarily have to take down an adult.
1: True. I do like the idea of dinosaurs hunting in packs, though. I hope someday there's some conclusive evidence of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I think everyone that wa- watches Jurassic Park thinks like, oh, that, that's crazy and freaky and also kind of fun in a scary way.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. In 2019, T.C. Hunt and others wrote about pathologies in Tenontosaurus teleti. It's not surprising when you find so many specimens that some of them have pathologies. This specimen was found in 2001. It was nearly complete and it came from the Antlers Formation in Oklahoma. It wasn't fully grown. It was nicknamed, though, the good Tenontosaurus because it was so complete. (laughs) (laughs) And it was about 16 and a half feet or five meters long. They used CT scans and they analyzed the fossils and they found five pathologies, four of which came from some sort of trauma. Mm. And it seems like it fell and broke its ribs, broke a toe, and then it had a bony outgrowth on the hand bone. Some painful pathologies. Yeah,
0: that's pretty gnarly.
1: These injuries healed, but it would have hurt its ability to get food or escape predators. And it would have been susceptible to more infections after. They found osteomyelitis in and around the ribs. That's an inflammation or infection of the bone. And on the left, toe bone. They also found a Brody abscess, which is a hole in the left hand that formed when bacteria-produced pus entered the bone. Oh, man. Yeah, it sounds painful. It's possible that this Brody abscess happened before the other injuries, or it developed after this Tenontosaurus, I think it fell, and that's how it hurt itself. But it's unclear, because it's not possible to assess the state of the soft tissue.
0: Yep, at least for now. Maybe someone will come up with a clever way to differentiate the two.
1: Yeah. And this is only the second time a Brody abscess was found in a dinosaur, and the first time one was found in an herbivore. So this poor Tenontosaurus, it would have had a lot of swelling, it would have been hard to walk, and it would have been painful to use its left hand. It's possible it lived for a few months after the injuries, that's based on the way it healed and its infections, but it would have been a terrible few months.
0: Yeah. That's intense, but that's the good tenantosaurus.
1: Yep. <laughs> Persevered, managed to keep most of its skeleton intact. <laughs> good job. <laughs> <laughs> Now, other animals that lived around the same time and place as Tenontosaurus include Carcharodontosaurus, like Acrocanthosaurus, Notosaurs, Dromaeosaurs, like Deinonychus, Oviraptors, Sauropods, Crocodilians, Turtles, Fish, and Mammals. And we've been referencing seeing a statue of Tenontosaurus. You can see that statue. It's being attacked by Deinonychus at the Goseong Dinosaur Museum in South Korea.
0: Yeah, that was the most intense one because it tenontosaurus is not happy about it and no there's,
1: there's lots of chunks missing
0: yeah it's intense that's an intense one i've seen a lot of cartoons of tenontosaurus getting attacked by deinonychus too mm-hmm. including one where it's like how do you survive a raptor attack and it's a tenontosaurus that says oh, yeah. stop drop and roll i and it's remember like that <laughs> rolling around on the deinonychus squishing them all over us.
1: poor
0: <laughs> but it came out ahead in that cartoon at least
1: yeah and if there's anything we learned from this one with all the pathologies it
0: Go to your happy place for a
1: happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: And our uh, fun fact of the day is that Kuru and Shri, those two velociraptorines we were talking about earlier, are the first velociraptorines named from the same location. Oh, And I don't just mean like the same bone bed. I mean the same stratigraphic layer and general area. They
1: definitely lived alongside each other.
0: Yes. Yeah, both of those two were also named within the last year as well, which is pretty cool. We went from none there to Mm -hmm. two and the first time two have ever been in the same spot. That is cool. Previously, there's been an assumption that there was only one velociraptorine per ecosystem that you know they filled that ecological niche and you would never have another velociraptorine because they were because competition was keeping them separated so you would only have one per ecosystem but obviously that's not the case at least in one location and the authors of the paper that described kuru think that there might be a lot more velociraptorines named in the near future because there are just some bones that look like they might be velociraptorines from formations with other velociraptorines. And it's also possible that some specimens might get split out from existing genera. Mm. So the Kuru paper could be hinting at way more velociraptorines. So if you're a big fan of velociraptor and its close relatives, we might have, you know, 2022, 2023 might be a, a good year for you.
1: That's exciting. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino thank you for listening. If you haven't yet already, then consider joining our community of fellow dinosaur enthusiasts at patreon.com inodino. Thanks again, and until next time.